Our gospel reading for this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, is John chapter 20. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we come to these truths year after year, and we we have heard the story, and we've heard the mighty acts that that Jesus accomplished on our behalf to deliver us from sin and the grave and the devil. And we ask you today to renew and refresh these things so that we can look at them as if it were the very first time that our hearts could be lifted up in praise and worship for all the glory of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, do not allow us to Uh, remain in a a calcified state as if we know everything and we've seen it all and we've heard it all, but refresh us and renew our faith as as little children that we would would behold these wonderful things and delight in you. And we praise you this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I think back to many years ago, my very short-lived very humble, to say the least, athletic career, which ended in high school. Uh, The one experience that I remember above all others was the running, which I really, really, really did not enjoy. I did not enjoy, have never enjoyed running. In, In the fall, I played football. In the spring, I did track and field, but but not the kind of track and field where you run, the kind of track and field where you throw things, right? I mean, the, the shot put, the discus, I did, I did that. But 
you still have to run. You still have to run and practice. Even if your event's not including running, you have to run. And so I had to run for football and I had to run for track and field, for conditioning. And my high school was right next to a very old but very well-maintained cemetery. It was a community cemetery and it had uh, paved paths going through it, lots of shade, lots of big old trees, and very well manicured, very well maintained cemetery, which was perfect for running. And uh, so that's where we would head right after, right after school was done. We would change, start every practice. You knew it always began with running through the cemetery. And depending on what mood the coach was in, that's how many laps you ran through the cemetery and then back to the field to begin practice. Well, that cemetery was fine. It was just fine during the day when it was sunny and there were no shadows. It seemed like the most natural thing in the world to be running through the cemetery. We spent so much time running through it that we never thought twice about it. It never seemed disrespectful or strange in any way. But that very same cemetery after dark was an ominous place to be. Even the most rational person avoids walking through a graveyard after dark. I mean, you, you know, and mentally you understand that there's nothing here that can hurt me, but still, still the shadows and the sounds, and it was just kind of creepy. And if you run in a cemetery after dark, it's not because you're trying to get exercise, it's because you're trying to get out of there as quickly as possible because you're creeped out. So you may, you may run through a graveyard when your coach makes you, or you may run out of a graveyard when you have the creeps, but who runs to a graveyard? I mean, whatever is in a graveyard can surely wait, right? I mean, there's no reason to run to a graveyard. Who runs to a graveyard? Well, the people in John chapter 20 are running, and they're running to a graveyard. Did you notice all the running when I read that text just a few minutes ago? Mary runs to get Peter. Peter and John run to the tomb. John outruns Peter. Peter catches up. Why are they all running? No one told them to, and they weren't doing it for exercise, certainly. In fact, it was quite undignified to run like this in the ancient world, as you well know. Children run, adults don't run, because in order to run, you've got to gird up your tunic so you don't trip and fall. And then, uh, but that would require you to show off your legs, which is embarrassing and shameful and undignified. You see, that's, that's why I don't run. It's not because I don't like the exercise. I'm just a, I'm just a classicist, and I think I just have these old tra uh, traditional values. That's why I don't run. But here, despite the cultural norm, there are these adults running all over the place on a Sunday morning to a cemetery, to a tomb, to a garden tomb. These adults who for three days have been weighed down with grief and guilt, in the case of Peter, and fear and sadness, their feet are heavy with worry. Now their feet are light and they're running as fast as they can. There's a nervous energy at the beginning which turns into a kind of a lightness and a swiftness as it's slowly revealed to each of them what exactly has happened, that sense of loss, and sorrow and despair dissolves and gives way as the reality of the resurrection sets in. There are three runners in this text with three different responses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, there are certainly more than three responses that one could have to the truth of the resurrection, the truth that Jesus 
the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, came, was crucified cruelly on a Roman cross, went down into the grave, and then came out of it. Then was given new life by the Holy Spirit. There's, there's more than three responses to that, but the fact that there are at least three responses in this text shows us that the Holy Spirit wrestles with each human being. Everyone created in God's image is wrestled with by God's Holy Spirit in a unique way. Not everybody follows the same script in John chapter 20, just like not every one of us has the exact same story for how we came to faith in Jesus Christ. Not everyone has a Damascus Road experience like Paul. Not everyone drops their nets to follow Jesus like Peter. Not everyone is born into a covenant family like Isaac or Jacob. Not everybody is married into a covenant family like Ruth or Rahab. We're all led by the Spirit to one point, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, outside of which there is no hope of salvation. There is one name given among men whereby we must be saved. There is one Jesus. There are not many paths to eternal life. There are not many paths to truth. It all runs through Jesus, but there are many paths to Jesus. There are lots of stories and lots of different ways that the Holy Spirit brings us to to Jesus through many different routes and experiences and through many uh, toils and fears, right? And, and there are as many stories as there are individuals, which is why when we get together for lunch or dinner, we, we meet in each other's homes. One of the very first things we do is tell me, tell me your story, right? Tell me, tell me how you came to know Jesus. Tell me how you became a Christian. And we tell those stories and we share those stories because they're, they're so different, which is why... You never need to get hung up on the fact that your story is different from mine or that my story is different from somebody else's. You, you don't need to feel like you missed out on something or failed something if your story isn't exactly like, precisely like another person's. And, and then we must certainly not make our script the standard or to question the validity or sincerity of another story on how they came to faith in Jesus. Of course, our stories are going to be different. And as we see three different paths, three different stories, three different responses to the resurrection here, we see that the resurrection stuck three different people in three different ways. The exact same data has three different responses that all end up in faith. Now, the first man I want to consider is John. He's called the other disciple in this gospel because he's the one who wrote it. And he does that. John does that throughout his own gospel. He, maybe to deflect attention from himself, sometimes he says the disciple whom Jesus loved, or he'll say the other disciple. John is one of the close inner circle, one of the, one of the three closest to Jesus. Maybe, and John might have been very well, Jesus' closest friend on earth. John is the one who's right next to Jesus at the Last Supper. Jesus, Jesus has John leaning on his side there. When the crucifixion of Jesus was imminent, all of the rest of the apostles skipped town. Everybody else left because they thought possibly if Jesus is being crucified, maybe we're next on the list. Maybe someone is going to go down this list picking everybody off and, and I'm going to get out of town. All the apostles leave except for John. John stays. John sticks around. Everyone else betrays or denies Jesus or is scandalized by the crucifixion not John. John is close enough to the cross to hear the last words of Jesus. The other gospels say Jesus shouted and gave up the spirit. 
John was close enough to hear what Jesus actually said. John is the only one who records, Jesus says, it is finished. It's because John was there and he heard what he said. John is the one to whom Jesus gave the responsibility of taking care of his mother. Jesus had brothers to take care of Mary, but he gave that responsibility to John. That's how close they were. That's how close Jesus was to John. That's how much Jesus trusted John. And now on Easter morning, on the morning of the resurrection, we find John racing Peter to the tomb. They'd gotten this unbelievable report from Mary Magdalene that the tomb of Jesus was empty. And so they run to see what this is all about. And John gets there first. And it could be that John gets there first because he's the younger or maybe he's in better shape. But he gets to the, to the tomb and stops. He gets right up to the edge of the tomb and he doesn't go inside. He kneels down and he looks inside. As you know, ancient uh, cave, I'm sorry, uh, tombs in the ancient world, more or less uh, for richer people, were like these caves over which you could uh, roll um, a stone to guard the mouth of the cave. And so inside the cave, there would have been a shelf where you lay the deceased and, uh, and so it might have been just a very low opening and John gets to it and he stoops down and he, he looks inside and he sees the linen cloths that wrapped up the body of Jesus. Those cloths are just laying there. Now, Peter catches up and Peter goes in, inside, he, he, he ducks down and he gets in and then John follows Peter and it's very curious what they find there. The linen cloths are on the slab where the body lay inside the tomb. But one cloth, the handkerchief that had been around Jesus' head, it isn't wadded up with the others. It's in another place, and it's folded up nicely. If, if someone had just come to steal the body, why would they go through this elaborate staging of the burial clothes? Why would grave robbers even unwrap the body to begin with? That, that doesn't seem reasonable. Now, John might have come to the tomb assuming that someone had stolen the body, but now this whole thing doesn't make sense. Nothing adds up. And so a new idea emerges in the mind of the disciple. And, and I'm sure that moment, that, that turn, that hinge stuck with him for the rest of his life. Because the text says he saw and believed. Now, I'm sure he believed before. He believed Jesus was who he said he was. He believed that God had sent Jesus and that he was the Messiah. He believed that Jesus was there to call Israel to repentance. But this was a, this was a new belief that had washed over him. Something, something new. Because so far he hadn't put it all together. In verse 9, it says, For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So, so he, hadn't, he hadn't quite put all this together before this point, but now he believed that the impossible had happened, that somehow God had vindicated his son Jesus by overruling the judgment of man and conquering the grave through Jesus. John believed that Jesus was alive again and that the world of sin and death and hell had been defeated. Somehow the Spirit had raised Jesus from the dead. Now, John is not naive. John doesn't believe this because he's a pushover, right? John is not a simpleton. He's not easily duped. On the same token, he doesn't have to be dragged kicking and screaming to the point of belief. He didn't need to see Jesus bodily raised. He didn't need to touch his hands or his side at this point to believe. 
He didn't need to hear the testimony of the angels. He, he didn't understand that Jesus had been raised from the dead before he got there, but when he got to the tomb, it didn't take a lot of convincing. He looked in, the tomb was empty, the clothes were laying aside, and he believed. And I think a lot of us here can relate to John. You believe like John believed. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus and the claims of Jesus over your life and over the cosmos, you accept it completely without doubt. And it isn't a struggle for you to accept God's promises, to believe his word. You may never have known a time in your life where you did struggle with those things. And you need to know that you haven't missed out on something because you've never doubted, because you never had a rebellious period of your life, you know, where you, where you joined a motorcycle gang and you hung out in dive bars and, you know, you, lit, you lived this awful life and then you came to faith. It's not like you missed out on something. It, it really is a blessing to know Jesus this way and you need to appreciate it for the blessing that it is, also knowing that not everybody's story is like your story. And so at the same time, you must be compassionate and gracious and sympathetic and patient and not be condescending to those whose story is different, who did, who did struggle in, in great ways with error and, and, and a difficult life. Do give thanks for this incredible blessing of this comfortable faith that, that John has, uh, for whom faith is not a grind. You just, yeah, that's who Jesus is, and that's what I believe. But there's another picture in this story, another figure who comes around a different way, and that's Peter. Peter was another one of Jesus's closest companions. Peter was probably the most vocal, the most outspoken, and, and dare I say bombastic throughout the Gospels, right? He, he certainly takes on a strong leadership role in the church after the ascension of Jesus. But along the way, things are not so easy for Peter. Peter is so frustrating at times. In, in Matthew chapter 16, you think, okay, Peter gets it. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus blesses Peter. And then the next minute, seven verses later, Jesus is rebuking him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. It's almost whiplash, the, the, the direction and the change that goes from, from God, uh, the son praising Peter and then calling him Satan. And that's just how difficult uh, Peter was as a, as a man. And, and that's how difficult it was in his attitude and his behavior. When Jesus is being tried, Remember, Peter is, is hanging around outside. Jesus is, is being questioned, and, and Peter's hanging around outside close enough to hear what's going on, but distancing himself from Jesus. And then when he's asked, he denies that he even knows the Lord. And on this resurrection morning, Peter runs to the grave, just like John, but when he gets there, out of breath, a moment after John, he's just like the Peter we know and love. You know, John gets there and he stops. Is it okay to go inside? Are, are we okay? I don't, I don't know if I want to go inside. I'm not quite sure I'm ready for that. I'll look in. Peter, he just charges right in. He just runs right in without beating around the bush, without asking permission, without asking anybody what they think. He just goes right in and he sees the very same things that John sees, but Peter walks out scratching his head. It doesn't say Peter believed. The other disciple believed. John believed. Peter walks away saying, I don't, uh, I, I don't really know what's going on here. Was, was Peter befuddled? Was he a little bit scared? Was he quite nervous about what all this meant? Now, 
Peter is older than John, and he might have been a little bit more hardened by life than John was, maybe a little bit more cynical. Peter certainly experienced the death of loved ones. He's experienced the death of people around him. And he knows that when you go in the grave, you don't come out. That's just the fact. There's nothing more for you in this world after you die. And he knew that Jesus died. So, so that's it. And that had to have affected Peter deeply. As the reality of the death of Jesus settled in for Peter, he had to have one thing on his mind. The last thing I did for Jesus was deny him. That was the last thing I did for him. After everything he did for me, I denied Jesus, and now I am never going to have the opportunity to make it right. I can't fix that. And then he would have to carry that with him for the rest of his life. And so whatever this new kingdom movement will look like after the death of Jesus, he thinks, whatever's going to happen from here on, I can't have any part of that. What I did was just about as bad as what Judas did. I'm marked. I'm blackballed. I've messed up so bad that I've put myself beyond forgiveness, beyond redemption. But in, in Mark's gospel, when Mary comes to the tomb on that morning, we read that an angel told her, go and tell the disciples about the empty tomb. And the angel says, and Peter. The angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter, especially Peter. Why? Because if there's anyone who thinks that he might not be welcome around here anymore, it has to be Peter. But then the angel names him. He singles him out. Tell Peter to come. Well, Peter walks away from this tomb that morning, perhaps not entirely sure of what's happened. But several days later, Peter goes looking. I'm sorry, Jesus goes looking for Peter and Jesus finds him fishing. Uh, Peter had been fishing all night with some of the others and he hadn't caught anything. And in the morning, Jesus stands on the shore and he calls out to the boat, children, do you have any food? In other words, hey, did you catch anything? Which is the worst thing if you've ever been fishing and you haven't caught anything for somebody to ask you, hey, did you catch anything? Well, bring that up. I mean, I don't, don't bring that up. I'm, just leave me alone. Y'all catch any fish? Well, out on the boat, they didn't recognize him. And they say, no, we didn't catch anything. And Jesus says, cast the net on the other side of the boat. And I'm sure they're grumbling, like, yeah, I didn't think of that. I mean, the, the fish are over here, right? I mean, they're not over here. The fish are over here. Wow. wow, that's a real brilliant idea. But they do it. They do it. They cast the net on the other side of the boat, and they catch so many fish that they can't even pull in the nets. And that's when John says to Peter, Peter, that's the Lord. Peter sees him and recognizes him. See how quickly John puts things together. John is so ready to believe and accept, but Peter is, is, comes along more slowly. Well, this is so funny. Peter, in his excitement, puts on his coat and jumps into the water. And I read that again this week, and I thought, I, I assume that you would strip down to your tunic or maybe strip down to your skivvies, even if you're out there fishing on the boat and it's hot outside. I can see that. But he, but he puts his coat on... And then he jumps into the water and he swims to Jesus. Maybe he was just so flustered, like, oh, give me my coat and jump in the water. And he swims to Jesus and Jesus feeds him breakfast there on the seashore. He feeds him grilled fish and bread over coals, the gospel says, over coals. Remember what Jesus warmed him, I'm sorry, remember what Peter warmed himself over when he was denying Jesus? It was a, it was a fire of coals and there... 
As Jesus serves Peter breakfast over a coal fire, Peter is still thinking back to, he has to be still thinking back to the night that he denied Jesus. And it's there over that fire that Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times. And three times Peter answers, you know that I love you. You know that I love you, Lord. Lord, you know that I love you. And those three times Jesus responds back, feed my lambs, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep. There on that morning, on that seashore, Jesus forgives Peter. He restores Peter. He welcomes Peter back in and he lets him know that not only you're forgiven, but you are needed for the kingdom. I need you, Peter, to feed my sheep. I need you. You're necessary. People who struggle with their faith, who mess up, who get knocked down, who are restored and forgiven and get back after it, they're important for the kingdom. Jesus comes looking for those who, like Peter, believe that he would never come looking for them. Jesus pursues those who think they're beyond all forgiveness and all restoration, who think that their sins have put them beyond the scope of God's grace. There are people And maybe some of you here, creation in six days, worldwide flood, virgin birth, bodily resurrection, and you hear it and you think, oh, I want, but that's so tough. That's so hard to believe. Is it it really, was it right? Is it really it? And you have to press into it and you have to examine everything and you have to study it and you have to grapple with it and you have to wrestle with it. For Peter too, trusting Jesus was not an easy thing. But when Peter got it, he got it. (laughs) When when he was gripped by it, he tenaciously held on and wouldn't let go. It doesn't mean that Peter never messed up again. We know of at least one more time where Peter had to be corrected. But we need guys and girls like Peter. We need those who are rough around the edges, a little little bit untamed, a little bit unpredictable, who take risks, who've been knocked down a few times, who know what it's like to really be forgiven. Some of you can kind of identify with Peter, and I encourage you to keep wrestling, keep fighting. Don't turn loose. Don't turn back. Don't give up. In your fight, you are an encouragement to everyone who fights and struggles. And know that if you see some some similarities with Peter, that the resurrection of Jesus is hope for you. If, If God's Holy Spirit can bring Jesus back from the grave, there's no place too far, too deep that he can't bring you back from as well. So the other face that we see in John's account on that resurrection morning is Mary Magdalene. The first time we meet her is in Luke's gospel when she's among the disciples and we find out that she had seven demons cast out from her. And after, after that point, after Jesus delivers her from the bondage of demons, when Jesus rescues her uh, from that possession, she never leaves Jesus' side. Her name is mentioned more times in the Gospels than most of the disciples. Her name keeps coming up. She was with Jesus all the way to the cross. She was there at the cross, and she watched as they took him down and laid him in the tomb. And now she's the very first one to the tomb. Now, when she goes there that morning, she's not expecting him to be gone. She has gone to the tomb to perform that loving, 
final act of devotion to anoint the body of Jesus with spices and to do the final steps of embalming according to Jewish custom. She's going there to mourn. She's going there, if we put it in modern terms, she's going there to have closure. And, and when she gets there, she can't even do that because the body's gone. What happens in verse 11? Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. So she comes mourning, and her mourning is only deepened and multiplied by what she finds there. Well, maybe you can identify with Mary. Maybe you came to Jesus and maybe you're coming to Jesus weighed down with grief and worry and anxiety and fear and unanswered questions that are prohibiting you from experiencing the complete rest and joy of the resurrection of Jesus. So, so maybe as we sing these songs today and as we rejoice and we pray, this some of these things are just kind of hollow and, and it just feels empty. You, your faith isn't as easy as John's. You're, you're, not, you're not doubting the way, the way Peter doubted, but, but you're coming with, with grief and your, your, your vision is so blurred by your grief the way that Mary's was because when, when Jesus does reveal himself to her, she doesn't recognize him right away. In fact, when she sees Jesus, she thinks he's the gardener, verse 14. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. But Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. So, so when she first sees him, you know, you can imagine he's off to the side and he's talking to her and she's not paying attention. She looks and says, oh, it's the gardener. What, did you take him away? What did you do with him? What, what's going on here? Are you, are you playing a, a, a cruel joke? What's going on? But was that really a mistake to think that Jesus was the gardener? I don't think so. Does, does Jesus look in any way like a gardener? In some old art, in some medieval uh, wood carvings and, and older art from like the 18th century, in this scene as it's carved and painted, Jesus is actually dressed like a gardener. He has a hoe, he has a, uh, a big floppy hat the way a gardener would have. And the symbolism of the scene is rather clear. Here's a man and a woman in a garden. This is the start of a new creation, as, as John read in the Old Testament lesson this morning. This is a new creation that God is starting here. Jesus is the new Adam, the new Adam of the new creation. He's the second Adam. And there's a woman there, Mary. She's in the role of the church. Jesus, the second Adam, comes to a garden to succeed where the first Adam failed. The first Adam didn't tend to his garden. The first Adam didn't keep the snakes out of his garden. He didn't protect his bride in the garden. He wasn't faithful to nourish her with it and to glorify her with the produce of the garden. But the second Adam comes and he turns all that around. 
The second Adam comes as a faithful gardener and he crushes the serpent's head at the cross. And now he says to the bride, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Jesus tells Mary, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In other words, you might say, first of all, oh, Jesus, why is he being so mean? Why, why is he almost pushing her away, saying, don't touch me? That's not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying in so many words, Mary, I can't stay. I have to go. But I live, and my life, and, and, and because of the work on the cross and through the resurrection, now my Father is your Father. And the message of Jesus to Mary is the message of Jesus to you if your heart also is heavy with grief. Mary didn't start out happy and cheerful on Easter morning. She was pretty heartbroken. Not only had Jesus died, but now she doesn't even know what they've done with his body. Someone has taken him away. He's far away, so I can't even, I can't even do this last act of devotion for him by anointing his body. She thinks he's gone, but in fact, he's nearer than she ever imagined. And maybe you're feeling the same thing. You feel God is so far away. The Lord Jesus has forsaken me. He's forgotten me. He's somewhere else. He's not here. But the truth is he is here. He's closer than you realize. You are in his presence this very moment. And just as Mary's sorrow and fear and grief turn to jubilation and rejoicing, so I pray that your heartache is relieved by the very same truths that lighten Mary's heart and Peter's heart and John's heart. The truth is this, that in the resurrection, Jesus has gone on before us through death and onto a new world, a new creation, a new life where death has been defeated and life abundant, life in all its fullness has begun at last. This is the beginning of the new creation. This is the first day of God's new week. The darkness is gone. The sun is shining. Death doesn't get the last word. Satan has been defeated. The power of sin has been broken. That means there's no future in evil. Don't grieve over evil men and their ways. There's no future in it. It's all been defeated. The darkness of the old world is past and the light shines. And now a resurrected man sits on the throne over the whole cosmos. Human flesh has entered the throne room of God and has been found acceptable, which means all of the world is redeemed and all of humanity are redeemed and there is a future for us all. So grasp hold of this truth. Put away all despair, put away all grief, put away all doubt. Put away bitterness and anger and guilt. You are living. You are citizens of the new creation. God, by his Holy Spirit, is wrestling with you now to bring you all the way over into his new realm to help you fully realize it and to fully enjoy it. So whether you identify more with John or Peter or Mary or some mixture of the three, a little bit of each, whatever that is, Jesus died for you. He was buried for you. He rose again for you. Trust him completely and rest in confident hope that his resurrection life is now your life. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for the resurrection of your son Jesus once again, and we ask you to renew our faith and renew our hope in him and in his life. 
Father, receive us who, who believe cheerfully with no reservation. Receive us who struggle all the way to belief and give us an extra measure of your Holy Spirit to, to counter our doubts. For those who are grieving, whose hearts are weighed down with sorrow or worry or despair, lift them up by the life that you gave to Jesus, by the power of the Spirit that rose him from the dead. Give them hope and rest in you and in your sovereign will and in your goodness. Father, I pray that everyone here would rejoice truly in the resurrection today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.